Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast, and we're joined by Craig Haley, national writer for Stats Perform and a contributor for Athlon Sports, and we're doing an FCS college football preview today. Craig, how are you doing today? Doing real well, Ed. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show. Let's start with the first question. Is it fair to say the FCS is more cautious than the FBS with COVID-19? Well, I I think the FCS is is certainly looking for waiting on decisions made by the FBS and then go from there. You know, the FBS level is going to have more money for, you know, what is needed you know, testing and, and just all factors involved with keeping people safe, keeping people distance. I mean, obviously, the FCS schools are going to, you know, put their best effort into it and, and in most cases, you know, do a good job. But at the same time, you know, it's a slower process just because they don't have the funding that FBS level does have. Do you think a conference like the Patriot League will play this year due to COVID-19? Well, I, I I do think, uh, you know, most conferences, especially the smaller ones, are going to put an emphasis on playing conference games. You know, it's generally doesn't involve, you know, a flight. You you can do it in a bus ride. I I think that's, you know, what we're going to see is an emphasis on on conference games. And, you know, maybe schools play, you know, only nine games instead of 11, or, you know, maybe they get in two of three non-conference games. I, I, I just think... It's going to, you know, it's going to be a lot of conferences that may not play a full schedule. Of their teams, you know, some of them are, are all going in with the intention of, of of doing that, but you know, there's contingency plans. So I, I do believe, you know, yes, some schools, some conferences may not play a full schedule. We'll talk about a specific team. Uh, NDSU has been dominated over the past decade. Um, how, how will the Bison look this year? <laughs> well, they're they're obviously the the team to beat. I mean. You're right. The Bison, you know, they've won eight of the last nine, you know, national titles. They've, they've actually won nine straight titles in the Missouri Valley Conference, which has been the premier conference. They're the team to beat. You know, they have a tremendous offense coming back. I mean, when when they left Frisco last year, you know, having beaten James Madison the title, you, you looked at their team and you said, wow, this team's going to be back for the next couple of years. And, and they just might. I do think losing Jabril Cox, you know, in a grad transfer to um, LSU really stands out. I think it, it hurts them a little bit, more than a little bit, but I'm just, I just think it, it, it guts them of their best player on top of losing some elite players. Um, it, it, so I, I think they're clearly the team to beat, and most people are going to all say that. I, I just think if you're going to look for a vulnerability, maybe the offense is better than the defense. And that's not usually the case because the defense has been so dominant through the years. So North Dakota State is the top dog. Everyone knows it. Uh, who are the main challengers that are going to be chasing them this year? Great great question, Alex. I mean, I, I think it, it really revolves around, you know, the Missouri Valley Conference with the best shot. I mean, I think, you know, Northern Iowa uh, is just loaded with experienced talent. I mean, they they were terrific last year going to the quarterfinals, and, and they were missing some players due to injury. Um, I, you know, South Dakota State's been the one that, within the Missouri Valley Conference, that 
really stood up to North Dakota State through the years and, and beat them a, a couple times, you know, during this dynasty. Uh, they have a lot back. I mean, they, they, they had some health issues uh, late in the season and were knocked out by Northern Iowa in the playoffs. I think those are, are two elite programs. I mean, Illinois State's another one in the Missouri Valley, you know, really troubled the Bison last year in, in the uh, quarterfinals. It was a 9-3 victory for the Bison. I think those are the ones. I mean, then you have the Big Sky has really been tremendous in recent years. I mean, they, they were the first conference to have four teams earn seeds last year. I mean, it certainly starts with, with Weber State, which has won, you know, three in a row. But, you know, the Montana schools, the Bobcats and the Grizz, you know, they're they're going to be bringing back veteran teams. I mean, th- those those are tremendous teams. James Madison, you know, may take a little bit of a step back here after losing so much. Uh, they only have nine starters back, so th- they have to reload a little bit. But I, I think th- that's the big group of teams you have to look at, you know, as the threats uh, to get to Frisco. Quarterback Trey Lance is the best FCS draft prospect since Carson Wentz. Can you repeat what he did last year? <laughs> wow. You're talking – Zero interceptions uh, to start his career, and um, you know he had 28 touchdowns uh, last year. I, I, yeah, I think the pressure is going to be phenomenal surrounding him because now you, you have you know national media and, and 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 draft pundits who are all projecting him you know as a first round pick if, if he comes out a, after his redshirt sophomore year, and if he's a first rounder, it's hard not to come out. Um, but there's you know. Yeah, what's going to happen when he does throw that interception? I mean, you know, th- then that little bit of that aura comes off him. Um, he's still going to have a tremendous year. I think it's going to be hard to be as almost perfect as he was last year. I mean, in the championship game, he, you know, he was under great pressure by, you know, James Madison's defensive line and, you know, really took off a lot. And I mean, ran the ball 30 times in that game. And you don't want to see that happen. You want to see him back in the pocket you know, looking downfield and, 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 you know, maybe getting out mobile when when needed. But, you know, you want to keep him protected as well. But he is, you know, he's got the size, he's got the arm, the athleticism. He is the real deal. But there is a tremendous amount of pressure on him for, for you know, just having one year as a starter. Craig, you mentioned that James Madison, they obviously had a fantastic year last year. They went to Frisco and played in that championship game. But you mentioned that they're going to take a step back this year. So are you picking somebody else to win the Colonial? Are you picking Villanova over James Madison? (laughs) What are you thinking? Villanova is the chief threat to to James Madison. I think the depth of teams top to bottom in that league is better than any conference in the FCS. So there are always, you know, eight, nine schools going into the season that are have legitimate playoff, you know, imp- uh, possibility. But I do think Villanova, with what they have coming back, and it certainly starts with Daniel Smith, their quarterback, who's been tremendous, tremendous throughout his career. He started at Campbell for two years. Um, last year he had the most uh, overall touchdowns, 48 total in, in the FCS, and he did it, you know, in just 13 games. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a veteran team right there. You know, they, they've got to get healthy in the backfield, and 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 they probably will be. I mean, I, I think there's a chance Villanova can knock them off. They certainly, you know, they'll be hosting uh, James Madison when when they meet head to head. There's a chance. Yes, I, I think it's a great question and, and a great possibility that Villanova can knock off James Madison. Villanova has a great offense, but do they have on do they have enough pieces on defense? What do you think, Craig? 
I think so. I mean, you know, Forrest Ryan is, is a linebacker who's, who's an All-American level. I mean, he, he had a great junior campaign last year. I mean, they, they basically have a standout in each unit. I mean, up front, Malik Fisher, uh, defensive end, can really, you know, go after it. And, and Jaquan Amos in, in, in you know, a cornerback has had a great career. So, I mean, they have a, a, an elite player in each level. And then you mix in veteran players around them with, with you know, great skill sets. So, yes, I think their defense is strong enough to, to, to you know, to, to stick with what they have on offense. That offense is phenomenal coming back. So uh, they're, they're a legit top ten team. You know, they've, they've disappointed in recent years, and, and a lot had to do with injuries. But this is a team that I think is motivated to, to really go far. I love great defenses, and uh, both Illinois State and Northern Iowa have great defenses. They've, they've had them through the years. What's their outlook this year? I know you mentioned that they're one of the contenders out there. They're going to make a run. Do they have enough on offense? I mean, Brady Davis is coming back for Illinois State. Well, Brady certainly has to take it to a, a little bit of a higher level. He's you know He's been a little inconsistent. Obviously, he got hurt last year. I mean, the, the big question with them is, whether they can replace James Robinson, their, their, you know, tremendous running back who went, went for 600 yards last year in just three playoff games. I mean, that's a big if, but, you know, I think they'll do it by committee. I think on defense they're stacked. I mean, they really, you know, took the ball away from teams last year, and, and, and you know, I believe they're, they set a uh, program record for sacks. I mean, they were always in the backfield. I think they're they're, you know, very strong on defense. And, and Northern Iowa is right up there with, being one of the being perhaps the best defense in the land, you know, with what the Bison always do. But Northern Iowa is, is uh, built, you know, to to go far this year. I mean, Elson Smith is is you know a great defensive end. I think he's their top Buck Buchanan award candidate. But they do have tremendous talent throughout that defense and offense. I mean, they, they had a you know Will McAvain was a freshman last year who ironically set the record for passing yards by a freshman in the Missouri Valley. Until Trey Lance's final completion in the national championship, Lance passed him last year. So that that you know he he did have a good year, McIlvain, but you know he, he'll need to take it to a ne- next level. And um, you know they've struggled to run the ball in recent years, but I, I think they do enough, and especially with that defense, they just want to wear you down that way. So both both those programs are, are stacked on defense. Is the Big Sky Conference the best in the FCS in 2020? I, it's close. I'm going to say no. Um, I do think Montana State has taken a big hit in the offseason with, with Troy Anderson needing to redshirt after a, 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 you know an injury last year, and, and Sacramento State has lost Kevin Thompson to a grad transfer. You know they're do everything quarterback. So I think those teams that hurts them. I, I mean I do think you have four legitimate candidates. You know for for top ten there when you include Sac State. For, for the Big Sky, but I just think the, the top four, you know, NDSU, Northern Iowa, uh, Illinois State, and South Dakota State, I think that's, they're just a little bit stronger than, than the Big Four of the Big Sky this year. But I, I do think the Big Sky has been on a great run the last few years and is in the conversation for that top spot. Man, Sacramento State was a Cinderella story last year. They really were, and Kevin Thompson was was a great story. Now he moves on to Washington. Is there any hope for the Hornets? Yes, uh, um, they they do. You know, it's it's a fertile 
recruiting base out there in the, in the Sacramento era. So I, I think that helps them, um, you know, reload from the year to year. I, I, you know, they, they lost some key players also on the defensive line, but they, they had a lot coming back around Kevin Thompson. Uh, Elijah Dotson's like, uh, you know, running back who's going to catch balls out of the backfield in addition to running the ball. And um, obviously they, you know, that they threw the ball a lot and, and you know, they have a, a tremendous wide out in Pierre Williams and, they had one of the most productive tight ends last year, a freshman named Marshall uh, Martin. I I think they have a lot back on offense, and that was going to be the strong suit of the team. They just now they need somebody to replace, you know, Kevin Thompson. You know, they had a freshman backup last year who who did get some uh, time. So I do think they take a step back because of you know the loss of Kevin Thompson. Craig, can you give us a team who can make some noise this year that that you're higher on than, than most folks? Well, uh, I could give you a few. I mean, I do think Illinois State kind of fits the mold because most people just assume with, with James Robinson having graduated that they'll take a big step backwards. But I, I just think they have talent everywhere. So if you're going farther down in, in you know, like top 25 ranks, you know, I, I thought last year going in that Sam Houston State was going to re- rebound. And, you know, they did go 7-5 and five and, and – you know, six and three in the Southland, which which is a really deep conference as well. They didn't quite get to the level I thought they would. I, I'm going to you know throw them in there and say they're going to have a big year. I mean, they have a quarterback named Eric Schmidt who was hurt last year, and and when he was healthy was was really dynamic. So I do think you know you throw them into the mix. I think the Southland Conference, whoever survives that conference, uh, you know, Central Arkansas, Nichols. Sam Houston, you know, uh, southern, uh, southeastern Louisiana. That's, you know, I think that, you know, a team from the Southland can go really far as well. You know, if if you look outside, you know, the top 25, um, you know, the CAA uh, is really like there's a strong mix behind, you know, Villanova and James Madison. I, I think a team that's worth a second look that won't be in any top 25s to go into the year is, is Richmond. Uh, they have a lot back, uh, you know, a very veteran team that that's disappointed uh, in, in recent years. But last year they did take a step. Um, their quarterback last year w- was really good at times. Joe Mancuso sort of can run the ball and pass it. I, I think they're definitely a team to look out if you're talking outside the top 25 for for like a surprise. Who's your favorite to win the Buck Buchanan Award? Oh. Um, I, you know, it would have been Jabril Cox for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have been the favorite um, for, for North Dakota State, but you know, he's gone from one national champion to the other with, with the grad transfer to LSU. You know, I think you have to like, you know, we mentioned Ellison Smith of Northern Iowa defensive end. I mean, he was in the backfield last year all the time. I think he had, you know, 14 um, sacks for the year. Uh, I think he's certainly, you know, in in the conversation. Troy Anderson, you know, would have been in that conversation if he hadn't got, you know, if he wasn't sitting out the year as a red shirt. You know, I, I think you can look. You know, this is a year that's it's a very good year for for defensive backs. Um, there's only been one defensive back through the years, 25 years of Buchanan Award. I, I think you you can look at you know Anthony Adams of Portland State will put up numbers. You know. Uh, you know, Fernando uh, Jordan of, of southeastern Louisiana, Robert Rochelle of, of central Arkansas, you know, they're in the same conference. They're, you know, those are possibilities. But, you know, Jace Lewis will put up numbers at Montana. 
you know, Bryson Armstrong Strong is a familiar name at uh, at Kennesaw State. He he won. He was the only. He's been the only defensive player to win the Jerry Rice Award as freshman of the year, and he's seems like he's been around forever at Kennesaw State. You know, the tremendous linebacker. He was the Big South Player of the Year. I just think it. it I think it's always wide open the Buchanan Award. Um, you know, Mike Green, James Madison stands out. You know, in the middle of the line there. I, I think, you know, you can make a case all across the board. Well, Craig, um, that's all the questions I have for you. Um, but could you please tell the listeners where we can find your work? Sure. Uh, I, our our uh, stats perform, you know, we, we cover the FCS year-round. It's www.fcs.football. Um, you know, I, I do work for Athlon as well, FCS coverage. You know, on Twitter, it's it's Craig Haley. Uh, so, you know, there, there's always uh, a lot going on in the FCS, and we're always trying to stay on top of it. Well, thanks a lot for your insights, Craig. We really appreciate it. Gentlemen, I really appreciate uh, all, all the hard work that you guys do. Thank you. We would like to welcome our next guest to the show. His name is Edgar Thompson. He's a Florida Gators beat writer for the Orlando Sentinel. Edgar, how are you? I'm great. Nice hearing from you. I hear you're over in uh, the hinterlands over there, buddy. I am, I am. I'm, uh, you know, don't even ask, basically. With uh, with everything that's going on in this country, I mean, I want to put you on the spot. Will we have a college football season this year? Well, six, eight weeks ago, I would have said, no way is the season going to start on time. And if they have one, it might not be until the spring, based on what I've read, what I, my sense of things, podcasts, things like that, too talking with my editor or whatever, because it was like, how are you going to do this split season thing, which doesn't seem possible to do. I just don't see how you split four or five games and then you take a significant amount of time and then try to pick it up again. When does it start, right? You're going to have tons of weather issues in January with some teams. So I'm thinking they might have to push it into February and then play, but then you're totally trampling on basketball and other sports. And these schools, you know, they try to be like, uh, you know, they try to honor all the sports. I mean, maybe Alabama not so much because it is interesting the dynamic they have there. But Florida is big into all of its sports, Olympic sports and everything. And I don't know that they would choose that route of, yeah, we're going to play football, basketball, plus baseball at the same time. And they're opening a new $65 million stadium in that sport, too. So they have, it's a lot of complications to push to the spring. So then after, you know, maybe two, three weeks ago, I went to the U.S. Board of Regents uh, trustees meeting, excuse me, which are all the big higher-up decision-making types and a bunch of PhDs presenting things, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And at that time, it's like they are feeling pretty confident that we're going to be able to play football, we're going to be able to have students on campus, and we're going to go full speed ahead. Now, one of the doctors admitted that COVID is going to be a way of life on the college campus, and at least in the fall, if not going in the spring. So it's mitigating risk. It's having a plan if there are infections, quarantine set up, things like that, um, et cetera, testing, you know, but they're not going to test every students, for example, it's impossible. There's 55,000 undergraduate students at the University of Florida. It's one of the biggest schools in the United States. 
And so that's, that's, you know, you answer a survey, you do things like that. They had a whole plan in place. You're listening to PhDs discussing it, not football coaches or media people. I mean, look, there are a lot of smart football coaches and media types, but there, most of them are PhD doctors. You know what I'm saying? So you're in a room with some serious brain power. And I was pretty impressed. So I'm like, yeah, things are going to be okay. And then now cases are going through the, you know, skyrocketing in the state of Florida, among other states, Texas and Arizona being, you know, the other two main ones, but there are others. And it's like, okay, so hold on. Do we need to tap the brakes here? So now they are tapping the brakes, at least shutting bars down and, you know, not allowing alcohol to be served stuff like that, and trying to, you know, stem the tide, you know, the, the tidal wave. So now it's kind of like, huh. So now to answer your question, I'm starting to really have serious doubts because here we are, you know, closing in on July 1. So they might have another month to make a decision, dude. I mean, like, they probably have one month from, like, today almost before they got to start making a final decision. So a lot has got to change between now and then. And, I just don't know that it's a thing to do because it's possible to do. We don't even have students back in town, man, in Gainesville, okay? I work for the Orlando Sentinel, but I'm based in Gainesville. And there's, you know, campuses like Clemson and LSU and all these places without students back, too. And they got tons of kids in quarantine. And you have some programs that have already shut it down, Kansas State, Houston, um, being two of them have already kind of shut it down for a, a period of time to kind of recalibrate. So, and you don't even have students here. So how's it going to be manageable when you do have students here? These are 18 to 22 year olds who not only feel bulletproof, they don't follow rules a lot of the time. And I don't mean that like in a horrible way. They just feel like I was describing it to some guy today. He's like, look, I've play, I, I sit out two weeks with the PCL sprain, for example. I get COVID, I guess I miss two weeks. I mean, they just can simplify it in their mind that way. Or I'm like a world-class athlete. I'm not getting that stuff, right? So, you know, you can't manage these kids. You can't keep them from going to parties and chasing girls. I mean, that's what we did in college. I mean, <laughs> right? You were going to sneak out of your damn house in high school to go do that. These, these are kids. So it's like, I don't know how you manage it. So I am leaning strongly toward a postponed season, if not a completely canceled 2020 season. But I'm definitely leaning toward a late starting postponed season, probably abbreviate it in some form where you eliminate some of these cupcake non-conference games. You have two bye weeks to play with this year. So maybe you can squeeze in a 10-game schedule, so maybe one cupcake, and then you're like an interstate rival, in the, or in, you know what I mean, like in the case Florida State with the Gators, and then your eight conference games. Or if you're in the Pac-10 or 12, excuse me, um, they have nine conference games, so maybe you play that and you're in-state or one cupcake and you're non-conference. However you do it, so maybe a 10-game schedule, eliminating a bye week so that it wouldn't start until like October-ish. They've already pushed conference championship games, it sounds like, a week. So maybe they can squeeze it in somehow like that with a later start. But then you're talking about, you know, potential flu season coming up in October, November, December. Is it going to get worse again? 
didn't really answer your question, but if I had to predict right now, they're going to have to postpone the season at the very least. So there's a story that a handful of Florida players have been quarantined. How is the university and football handling this situation? Like, what's your opinion on it? Well, so in the sake of full disclosure, just to let you know the industry in which I work, I'm just wrapping up a furlough. So I'm working for you guys for free today. And <laughs> I'm like, so um, I'm on furlough till Tuesday. So I wasn't around this past week because I also covered NASCAR, Frost, and golf. And there was a lot of news going on in those two sports too. Now, I could I would have probably ended up writing on Bubba Wallace this past week and some other things. But so I wasn't pulled in on this Gator story because I wasn't available. But my understanding is it's like maybe like one player, one scholarship player. So this isn't like a, a deal like the LSU, Clemson deal. This is 11 athletes total. Two of them tested like in April, one not even living in Gainesville. So it's 11 total athletes out of 500 athletes. But a couple of football players, I think one is a non-scholarship and one's a scholarship player. So I don't really have info on how they're handling it beyond like just what, how everyone's handling it. you got to go into quarantine. You got a contract, contact trace, all that kind of, I always say contract trace, the contact trace. And that's, I'm sure, how they're handling it. And they're probably just bracing, man. Everyone's scared to death, right? They just are. I mean, there's liability worries, optics concerns, and really the biggest concern is, you know, just health. You don't want to have a kid. What if you have a kid on your team with, like, an underlying health condition? That Jordan McNair, did he have an underlying health condition? He died at Maryland. I don't know. He might have had some heart thing. Maybe he didn't. But what if you do have a kid who has, like, a some issue he just didn't know about, and he gets COVID and dies? And it's like, what? And it's like, well, yeah, he had blah, blah. He had some lung, you know, congenital lung thing no one knew about. So that's a real fear. And then if you want to get down to bottom line stuff and, you know, you got to look at that. I mean, it's not being callous. It's being realistic. It's a financial disaster if football is completely preempted because it's such a money maker for these schools. And, you know, it, it runs everything. And so you're talking $26 million last year Florida made in ticket sales. And that was six home games because they played one away. So that's a lot of money just right there, ticket sales. And that's another question, fans, how do you even deal with that? So playing football has, is just essential in so many levels for that, but you can't force kids into situations. These are non-paid athletes without a union. Yes, they get a scholarship. Yes, there's now a cost of attendance stipend. Combine that $75,000, but that doesn't all go in their pocket. I mean, Less than 10,000 of that's going in their pocket or maybe a teeny bit more, but not much. And these kids guys are producing, you know, um, for guys who make millions in some cases and nice salaries. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, how do you force these kids into, you know, bubbles and like other leagues are doing like pro leagues or, you know what I mean? It's just, it's so, it's so complicated, man. And, and it's just, 
they're, I'm sure they're just bracing. I mean, because they just, they're just nervous that this is going to really just either A, blow up in their face, or the plug's just going to get pulled on it. Well, the first college to cancel its season was Morehouse College. They're the first ones, I think, to announce that they're canceling all the games. So one of the universities, one of the colleges has already made that decision. I'm sure there will be a few other D2, D3 programs that are going to follow just because I can't imagine fans being in the stands for the NFL season or the college football season if they want to control this thing. I, I want, Yeah, I know I've been a little long-winded. I mean, I tend to be a little, but it's so, so, so complicated. It's hard to stay, like, really brief and on point. But I can be on at least this. The swamp holds 90,000 people. I feel, feel like it's realistic to put a third of attendance in a, in a size. 30,000 people could, could go in there. You could get them in, right, and space them, mask them up outdoors. I don't think that would be an impossibility, Alex. But here's where I have the issue. And you're seeing it. And, and I'm not sitting here saying I'm the most, you know, selfless, altruistic individual on earth here and my mother Teresa or something, right? But the fact of the matter is people are just, their selfish natures are being shown right now with the non-masking, the packing bars when it's supposed to be 57% capacity, the beach scenes, the rivers, the springs, all these things, people are getting covid Mass break, outbreak, right? When you get people out of the stadium, dude, that's the problem. Because you think that people are just going to sit around and wait their turn to leave? Nobody seems to want to wait their turn anymore or, or you know? And so you're packing 30,000 people into a 90,000 seat thing. It's manageable. You got to stagger the entrances and get temperature checks. You can do all that. It would take a while but it's getting them out because everyone's going to be like, yeah, I want to get out of here. And they're just going to push their way through. And then you're going to get choke points and stuff like that. And people screaming and yelling. And then that's where I'd be worried. Right. That's yeah. my, that's my concern. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of underlying factors that go into this and it's, it's going to be tough to, to control. You're not going to be able to explain to a college kid that he can't hang out with his girlfriend and his friends and, and go to parties. Let's move on to, to the Florida Gators. It's, we decided to do this sure. preview. We're hoping that football season will occur, even if it's going to be delayed. We're hoping to see SEC football especially. Edgar, I'm curious, last year uh, this team went 11-2. and two. They finished in the top ten. Were you surprised by last year's record? I was surprised by last year's record, uh, given Felipe Franks broke his ankle in the third game. Because Felipe Franks ended his 2018 season seemingly finding the secret sauce. Uh, he had 12 touchdowns, zero turnovers, and looked like, okay, finally this kid with all this talent had figured it out. Starting with the second half of the South Carolina game, they went on a roll. And uh, he breaks his – first, he didn't play that well in the opener against Miami. Some turnovers and just kind of sloppy, typically typical Felipe. But you're like, first first game, they still won. And then he breaks his dang ankle against Kentucky, and they're down 21-10 to 10 
like with a minute or two left in the, in the third quarter of the game, you're like, well, they're going to lose to Kentucky for the second straight year after not losing to them, you know, since 1986, <laughs> right? They finally, they're going to lose two in a row. Well, Kyle Trask comes in, who had never started a college game and barely played any, and the rest is history. He was terrific. He, he was a complete offense, never looked as smooth. This offense looked better last year in terms of this, the operation, right, of running the plays, of not screwing up, of being, you know, not just having just sloppy penalties and, you know, missing open receivers and just a bunch of the stuff we've been seeing for years here. And had a good quarterback here in eons, going back to Tebow, really, and – Suddenly, this kid who had never played at all, redshirt junior, not played at all hardly, comes in and is just throwing darts and has the offense completely um, under his control, and they didn't have any running game to back him up at all because the offensive line created zero push last year. They averaged 129 yards rushing. But to Dan Mullen's credit, he said we're just going to become a passing team. He wasn't hard-headed about it. The year before, dude, they averaged 213 rushing and two twelve and a half passing or something like that. I mean you talk about balance. Last year it was one twenty nine and about three hundred. So for passing. So he just said we're just gonna become a passing attack. And they did it. And it was pretty damn impressive, I gotta say. So yeah, I was pretty surprised to say the least. With all this hype, can this team win the SEC East with Georgia in the division? I mean I think here here's Florida's big advantage. And it's a COVID um, possible uh, benefit for the Gators. I mean, there's no benefit from this for anybody. But in terms of the football, the Gators are going to be ahead of other teams that are uh, their main challengers, let's say. Georgia, the SEC title for East title for Florida is going to go through Georgia and LSU and a visit to Tennessee that's scheduled for September 26th. If, if they play it then. Those are going to be their three toughest games, I think. Some people think Ole Miss is going to be tough. Maybe. I think we'll see. I mean, Kiffin's good, and the quarterback's intriguing, but we'll see. So let's say those are their four tough games. Well, Florida is going to be ahead of all those teams because, um, or at least three of them, because the quarter is a new offense with Kiffin, for example, eliminate them. Then you got a new offense with Georgia with Todd Monken and a new quarterback, Jamie Newman, coming from Wake. Then you have a new quarterback at LSU and a new offense because Joe Brady lost. So they lost Joe Burrow and Joe Brady. Florida, meanwhile, has Trask and Mullen and Brian Johnson, the QB coach here. They've been together now three years. They're on the same page. They have some veteran guys coming back at the skill positions. Trey Grimes, Kyle Pitts, the LSU tight end. Um, you know, Jacob Copeland's ready to make a step. We think Kadarius Tony's back. So, so they have some pieces and they know the system. You're not going to, you know, by the time they play these teams, they're going to be more familiar with what they're doing. But there's a lot to be said for having an experienced quarterback and a really proven system and a really great play caller too. And Dan Mullen at a time like this, where you're just going to be in a really tight window getting all this stuff put in. How far can this team go? Well, there's there's some questions, obviously, but to start with the positive, here, let's start with the questions. 
And but to George, in George's defense, no pun intended, is the fact they have like 10 starting defensive players back. I think their defense could be really good. So George is still, you got to beat them. And, and they've been recruiting lights out. So George is still going to be a very tough out. But uh, I think George, Ford is probably as close to Georgia as it's been in a while. So, but yes, the Florida's chances are going to hinge on a couple of things, in my opinion. And one of them is the offensive line has to be able to generate a running game more this year. Last year, it was this a comedy of errors with that line. They'd miss an assignment. I mean, Michael Pirine was wasted last year, a good part of that season. I mean, he showed how good he is in the orange ball. Three touchdowns, 181 yards from scrimmage. The 88-yard touchdown run to seal the deal against Auburn was pretty impressive. It, I mean, more than pretty impressive. It was awesome. But he he just was bottled up most of the year. Uh, he, he became an effective pass catcher, but it was just, you know, he, he it just they just couldn't get, get a running game going. You get a running game going, you get Kyle Trask in play action, with his, his cerebral and as well as he surveys the field as accurate as he is, man, they could be that could be tough for other teams if suddenly you got the threat of the run with Kyle Trask back there. So that's big. The other big key is the safety play. I thought the safeties last year, I mean, just were not good. And that was obvious in the Orange Bowl where they allowed the Virginia to come back. They gave up Jake Brown was nine of thirteen on third down in the Georgia game which was only a seven-point loss. So those were a lot of key first downs, and Gators were just blowing it down the field, the safety repeatedly, um, missing assignments. It just, just wasn't good back there. And I don't know what the solution is there. I think there's some talent back there. I think Brad Stewart is a really talented guy, but he's just, you know, he's always seems to be something going on with that kid. He gets suspended or you know, whatever. So he, he needs to have a good senior year. But that, that back end of the defense, man, was very suspect last year. I mean, you go back to the spring game of 2019, you know, that's set up for the offense to be good and entertaining and all that. But they, the safeties looked awful in that game. They were missing plays right and left. And we asked about it afterwards, and everyone just blows it off like, ah. It was set up that way. Well, no, it really wasn't. They, they're not, they weren't good. So there are other areas, but those two, if I had to point to like what you got to do this year better for the Gators is stop the run and really shore up the back end. I mean, not stop the run, generator run, yeah, and shore up the back end. What do you think of Dan Mullen? I think he's a brilliant offensive mind. I will. I actually will be surprised if he doesn't end up in the NFL someday. I, I just think he's that good. I think in the game's gone that way at the NFL level. Uh, he's just an X and O. Um, he's just a savant with that stuff. He, he recognizes matchups quickly, finds your little stress points, and just makes you look. Just hammers them. I mean, Dave Aranda two years ago, LSU, when they beat LSU a couple of years ago here in the swamp, just had Dave Aranda at the end of the stick. He pushed him around at the end of the stick. And that guy's the highest paid defensive coordinator in college football, or was. And, you know, a good, really good coach. Uh, Dan made him look bad. 
you know, Kirby's had his number a bit, I guess, but that, I find that some of that defensive shortcomings and some other things. But Dan, man, he, he really just knows. I mean, look, like I said, look what he did last year. He adjusted the offense completely from what he was probably hoping to do and, you know, did really well. The place where I really was most impressed with Dan Mullen last year was at LSU. I thought the Gators, obviously Auburn gave LSU the best game, 23-20, I believe. But I thought the Gators played Auburn's, I mean, LSU's brand of football and went toe-to-toe, punch-to-punch, you know, whatever, volleying back and forth, whatever sport metaphor you want. With LSU, stood toe to toe with LSU. That's when I was looking for better than anyone offensively all year. I mean, Alabama, I didn't think hung with LSU. I mean, the game on the scoreboard was relatively close, but Florida lost by 14, but it was like back and forth, back and forth. I don't know if you saw that game. Fantastic football game. And they just kind of ran out of gas and they were in the red zone twice in the fourth quarter and passed through an interception. It was a really, one of his really bad plays of the year off the back foot, tried to make something happen. And the other one, I think they just got stopped maybe. I can't remember. But I don't know what your take was on that game. But, man, the Gators came out, and they got hit in the mouth too, man. I mean, LSU, first series was nothing. LSU, boom, 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 scores. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long night. And the Gators just put a drive together, got way late again. Another drive together, way late again, another drive together. I think that first half, LSU had the ball, like, on its scoring possessions, like eight minutes, and the Gators had, like, 20. (laughs) They just were putting drives together. It was unbelievable. And I was sitting there, and that was the night that sold me on Dan Mullen more than any, where I was like, man, this guy knows what he's doing. This team is so prepared. Now, the Georgia game, they came out and were having all this, like, operational issues early. I don't know if you remember the game. They were like screwing up right out of the gate. Well, Pat Dooley, the longtime Gainesville Sun columnist here, pretty plugged in guy, very savvy, you know, been around the block for a long time. And he reported that they had the wrong wristbands on the receivers had the different game, had the wrong game plan. Some mad team managers had had done it wrong. Now, this story never really got a lot of traction, but it explained a lot because it was like the whole first half, I mean, the whole first part of that game just it was lost because they came out of the gates and they weren't on the same page for a couple of series, committing penalties, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, Dan Mullen is pretty amazing X and O guy. And, and I could see an NFL team identifying that sooner than later. So you don't think Dan Mullen is there for for the rest of his life with the Gators? I mean, he he looks like a guy that just loves being a Gators head coach. Not like Urban Meyer, who left, who was looking for the next job. But I just think Dan Mullen is one of those lifers. Am I wrong? Uh, I mean, I think he loves it here. I think his wife loves it here. They do love the college vibe. I mean, his wife is great with the players. She's like a team mom. I think they love the energy of the game, of the fans. I mean, Dan is still kind of like a kid at heart, even though he's 48. I mean, he's got a lot of that childlike enthusiasm. But, you know, if they're throwing $10 million at you or $9 million at you, and it's all just football, because here's where Dan isn't elite. 
is recruiting. And I mean, he would, if he hears me say that, I mean, you know, if he listens to NFL draft clips, he's not going to like that. But, you know, I think the world of Dan, great to deal with, but the, his record is in recruiting speaks for itself. It's solid. He's produced a lot of great guys, but Kirby Smart has like 22 five-star signees the last like four, four years, I think it is. 22. The Gators have one. So it's like, you know, that's where, where it comes in the end. I mean, that's, that's depth. That's potential stars. Um, I don't mean, you know what I mean? I mean, NFL, you look at it, yes, three stars and four stars, particularly, you know, four stars develop into five-star types. I mean, I think Dan's developed four stars into five-star talent, but it's just, you know, it's hard to beat teams that are getting three and four and five, four star, five stars every year. I mean, look at Clemson, Alabama, LSU, I mean, Ohio State. Those are the teams that dominate getting those kind of players, and look what they – and they're always in the playoffs. You know, LSU, not always. But, but yes, so Dan needs to – so maybe he's just like, hey, I'm a football coach. I'm an X and O guy. That's what he likes to do is just scheming the chess match. So I'm not saying this is going to happen next year, but maybe three or four years from now, I mean, he wins an SEC title or two, maybe. Let's say he wins a national title. You know, five years from now, he's still only 53 years old. He could go to the NFL. Yeah, it's never too too late to, to go to the NFL. I mean, a lot of guys have done it. I mean, look at Jimmy Johnson out there. Edgar, you mentioned that uh, weaknesses of this team, you, you wish that the offensive line play would be better. They would establish the run. And then you mentioned the safety play last year. What is the strength of this team, of this Gators team in, in 2020? That's pretty good because I told you I was going to tell you the negatives and the positives, and I left out the positives. I, you know, Kyle Trask, I think, is he's the leading returning passer in the SEC. I mean, is it going to be, you know, is he going to turn into the pumpkin, you know, Cinderella? I don't think so. I think there's, he has staying power, in my opinion. He's very – the thing about Kyle is he's very knowledgeable with what he's trying to do out there. He's accurate, which is, I, I think, maybe the number one quality of a quarterback physically is you got to be accurate. And mentally, you got to make quick decisions. And the other thing is he is unflappable. I mean, the South Carolina game started out really poorly, and the weather was adverse, adverse conditions. And um, the Virginia game, the Orange Bowl, I mean, he wasn't on at all. He was off. For a while, and it was like, ooh, Kyle Trask, man, the shines you know, come off Kyle Trask, it looked like. No problem. He just kept at it, kept plugging, plugging, and by the end of the game, he was just tearing them apart. He used to down throws and all kinds of stuff. He had a fourth down run, all kinds of things. So he's great at that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge for the Gators and for Dan Mullen in his offense. It's so quarterback-based. Not that they all aren't, but, I mean, the quarterback's got to be, you know, he, with a good quarterback, Dan Mullen do a lot. Kyle Pitts is an amazing tight end. He's really a matchup nightmare. I mean, he's, he's almost like – it's like a wide receiver playing tight end. He's got speed. He's got incredible hands. Um, they're just missed. They're huge. And just sudden drop balls. 
Uh, you have Trey Grimes, who I think is ready to really break out. He's the Ohio State transfer. And there, there was a glutted wide receiver. I mean, no one was really like, you know, like the main guy, but they're going to need kind of a main guy this year. And if Trey Ryan is certainly at 6'4", 215, with his speed, leaping ability, and all that has really potential to be a big breakout guy. And, uh, you know, I think that the cornerbacks are a strength. I mean, Marco Wilson, a lot of people thought might go to the NFL draft. Well, he came back. And that's huge for them. And then Kyrie Elam, who's Matt Elam's uh, nephew, is uh, he's was like an All SEC freshman selection. The other cornerback, that's pretty special right there. And I think the pass rush brings back 28 some sacks, which is the most in the SEC. And that's despite losing John Grenard, who was like you know as good as anyone in the league last year. He led the league in sacks. So they're going to definitely create pressure off the edge as Grantham's defenses, Ty Grantham's defenses always do. They're going to have cornerbacks. When you can pressure the passer and cover people, that's huge in today's game. And then the other thing that the Gators have going for them that they haven't in a while is I think they have some interior lines that with T.J. Slayton, who seems to be trending, coming on, and is generating some national buzz even right now. And I think he made second team all American with sporting news, which is like, I mean, that's a little much maybe, but maybe they're really, they're really high on him. And he's a physical marvel. I mean, six, four, like three fifty ish almost and really can just move. Apparently he's the best dancer on the team. Someone told me. So he's nimble. Um, they, the one loss I didn't mention is David Reese, the middle linebacker. He wasn't a real sideline-to-sideline side type playmaker. He's like a more of a 70s, 80s kind of linebacker, you know, between the tackles back when the game was really run-oriented. I mean, the guy made 340 tackles in his career at Florida. I mean, he's like 11th all-time. He, he, and he was a quarterback of the defense in terms of putting people in the right place and knowing the scheme, and he's a leader. And that's going to be someone that's going to be tough to replace. But they are bringing in some pretty talented guys. They have a lot of young, young guys at that position with some real potential, including Derek Wingo, who's an incoming freshman with the Gatorade Player of the Year out of South Florida in the state. Uh, Gatorade Player of the Year in the state of Florida, which produces a lot of good players. And they, he's coming here, and he's a middle linebacker. So there is, there is uh, some intrigue at that position. And I'm a big linebacker guy. That's my whole wheelhouse, like going back to my childhood. Love all of the linebackers. So I'll be interested to see if they can get a real playmaker there. And the last guy I'll mention, actually, Alex, sorry to ramble, is Bretton Cox Jr. is a transfer from Georgia who was one of the many five stars Kirby signed, and he transferred here. He's supposed to be like 6'4", 247. I mean, he looks the part, and he's like, Explosive. I don't know if, if he's going to be great or not, but he sure looks the part. And Ty Grantham knows how to coach that position. I mean, he knows how to get a guy to generate sacks to people. I mean, he does it every year. Ja'Kai Polite, Grenard, go back to Jarvis Jones, a bunch of guys that Louisville works with. I mean, he's always able to kind of get a guy to get you double-digit sacks. He's very, very astute at, at finding those kind of mismatches and stress points. What kind of year will Kyle Trask have in his second year at the helm? You know, I mean, like I said, it could be, is a sophomore slump, even though he's a redshirt senior coming. Um, I just 
I don't foresee it. I think the kid is just a level-headed, uh, unflappable, focused kid. And he's finally getting his chance. This is a kid, his story is remarkable. I, everyone who re- read about it, followed it and all that, I mean, it was it's just a crazy story. And he was a starting quarterback as a freshman in Manville, Texas, 20 miles south of Houston. And as a sophomore, this kid, Eric King, comes to that team. So Kyle Trask suddenly is the backup to De'Aaron King, who I think broke Tyler Murray's Texas high school passing record, or came close. So And then went to Houston and had 51 total touchdowns two years ago, and then last year pulled that whole stunt where he redshirted after one three start, and that was at Miami. But he is a stud, Derek King. So Kyle just played behind a guy for three years. And rather than transfer, which every kid does now, rather than do this, rather than bellyache, he just played his role. He had 16 touchdowns and no interceptions whenever he got in the game. So he was pretty efficient. And then he comes to Florida as a two-star recruit. He hadn't even rated. Go look at Kyle Trask, 24-7 sports say. I mean, it, it, it's like there's not enough play. I mean, he's like the last player in the country. So he was like a two-star recruit. Doug Nussmeyer, who's not the Cowboys coaching tight ends or something. You know, everyone knows Doug Nussmeyer. He's Alabama. He was a, basically a, a, um, I'm trying to think of the word, disgraced offensive coordinator here when Jim McElwain and him were basically let go. Nobody, but he, he saw something in Kyle Trask and they got Kyle Trask to come to the Gators. He had offers at Lamar Houston Baptist and the University of Florida. Comes here and was like an afterthought to Felipe Frank, same class, etc. Now, but I swear we go see practices. I mean, we don't get to go out there much, but you could see with Kyle Trask, even in the limited time we would get to go see them destroying routes and stuff, he could spin it. He was accurate, perfect spiral, quick release. Confident, six four, good size, fit kid, and I'm like, man, this kid looks good, and he never did anything. He never played. And you're like, man, you know, maybe he's just not a leader. Maybe he just doesn't have the experience, the killer instinct. He was never a starter. Yada yada yada. Then last year happened, and hey, he's been waiting for this chance for a long time. So believe me, he's working his tail off to capitalize on it, because I think a lot of people feel like Kyle Trask is an NFL future now. So moving on to the defensive side, does this team have enough pieces on their front seven, you know, with losing Jonathan Grenard and Ja'Kai Polite and so forth? Well, they, they, Polite left two years ago, but Jabari Zuniga is the one I think you're thinking of. It's easy to mix them up. But they, they uh, yeah, I mean, that, Jabari didn't barely play last year. This is crazy, man. I mean, so last year, Jabari Zuniga, he already had like three and a half sacks through two games. He was dominant against Miami. You know, I was a young line, and they got 10 sacks against Miami to open the season um, as, a, as a group. But Zuniga barely played last year. He played a little bit against Georgia. And then early on, he had a tackle for loss on like the second play of the game. 
but he had this high ankle sprain. He must have torn a ligament or something. He was jacked up all year. And he played 14 quarters of football last year. Grenard hurt his ankle against Auburn, but he wasn't 100%. He played seven snaps at LSU. So they played LSU, lost by 14 without their two best edge guys, and they weren't even healthy for the Georgia game. If those two guys had been healthy last year, fully healthy for those two games, the Gators might have won the national title, man, based on paper. I'm not saying they were the best team, but it was pretty incredible to think about that. So, yeah, those are big losses. It showed last year. I mean, they they lost two games that they could have won because they didn't have those two guys at full speed. So, overcoming that loss, Brenton Cox is going to really have to step up. They have that Diabati kid, Mohamed Diabati. Um, he's uh, got some real potential, a lot of speed off the edge. And like I said, Todd Grantham, it's like a revolving door. I mean, Jokai Polite left after an 11-sack, 7-4 fumble season, and you're thinking, oh, my God, how are they going to replace him? Well, Grenard was even better in a lot of ways and certainly a better leader. So it was like, Grantham has got a knack for that, being able to replace those dudes. And as I mentioned, T.J. Slayton, he actually was considering the NFL maybe, which was surprising because he was finally starting to show something. He, he came in as a top-rated guy in the 2017 class. He was an um, under-armor All-American, but as an offensive lineman, and he switched over to the defensive side, and it looked like he was going to be a world-beater, and he never did anything until like the second half of last year. And then, so you're kind of like, huh, maybe he's finally the light's gone on, and then he's going to leave for the NFL, or he didn't. And then Kyrie Campbell is the other defensive tackle starter, and he was thinking of the NFL apparently too, and he's coming back. So you have two interior linemen with experience, and, you know, you have a couple other guys behind them that are pretty, most like they're pretty good too. One that we lost last season because we lost last season because of a knee injury, Elijah Conlup. So we'll see how he comes back. I think that, um, you know, that front, the defensive front could be pretty formidable. I think it's a real strength of the team potentially. I'm looking at the running back position, Edgar, and you mentioned LaMichael P. Ryan moving on to the NFL, going to the Jets. Is Lorenzo Lingard in the mix? I mean, the former five-star recruit who went to Miami, he transferred to Florida. Is he uh, the next guy up in the running back rotation? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought him up because I tried to slip him in there with Brenton Cox, but I figured, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I was trying to limit my tangents to just three and answer. Lorenzo Lingard got his eligibility waiver. And he's an Orlando area kid and was a big-time recruit, number two running back in the entire 2018 class. So he's another five-star. So Dan Mullen basically has four five-stars on the roster right now. Three of them are transfers. Um, Brenton Cox, Lingard, and the third being Justin Shorter, the receiver from Penn State, who we can talk about here in a sec, too. We probably should. But Lingard is a real explo- really explosive player. And he went to Miami, and things just didn't work out. Uh, he got injured. Um, last year there was an issue because he didn't want a red shirt, and they wanted to, and blah, blah, blah. So he left. 
and he's closer to home now. He's only about 90 minutes from home now instead of, you know, several hours. And I don't think he's enjoying his situation down there. And plus they were six and seven last year. And the Gators, you know, are a team talked about as a college football playoff contender this year. So it, it just seemed like a better situation. Then he got his um, waiver. And on his birthday, in fact, a few weeks ago, he found out and tweeted it. So that was big news for the Gators. So we'll see what he can do. Um, the, Damian Pierce is the heir apparent to Pirine as just the runner in this group. He's a Georgia kid. He's a powerhouse, man. Short, human ball and ball type with some real, some burst. He's had a lot of long runs for the Gators. I mean, I forget I added it up, but he has like five runs of 40 yards or more just as a backup the last two years, which is the same number P. Ryan had as the starter, essentially. So Pierce is, Pierce is the guy who I think they're going to turn to to be not the bell cow, but to be the primary runner. And um, this kid's like a phenomenal uh, athletic specimen in terms of his power. They say he can squat like 650 pounds, like warm up with it. Like literally. Just like it's nothing to him. <laughs> he's a monster. So he's powerful. And they just need to create some holes for those two guys. And I'll tell you, a real X factor potentially on this team, man, is Malik Davis, who's a name that hasn't been mentioned much in a couple of years. But Malik Davis was really the only bright spot on the offense, that putrid offense of Jim McElwain and Nussmeyers in 2017. I mean, that that team was brutal to watch. And Malik Davis was like the only bright spot out of Tampa, leading rusher all-time in Hillsborough County, which is a you know impressive feat in itself. I mean, that's an area that produces lots of big-time talent. And he comes up here, and he was kind of an afterthought, you know, down the depth chart, and ends up being like it was a revelation. He had such incredible – I remember the first time I saw him carry the ball at a summer practice. His acceleration and just shifting – you know, you know the guys who can accelerate out of cuts and they never slow down? You know what I mean? They shift and make a little little subtle cut, and they just never lose speed. Percy Harvin was like that. I'm not saying this guy's as fast as Percy. That's how Malik Davis was running them. And I was like, man, this guy's got something to him. And sure enough, he was leading the team in rushing and yada, yada, yada. And then he blew out his knee when they lost 42-7 to to Georgia. I mean, Georgia was punished for it that day, and physically and, and emotionally. And they fired McElwain the next day. But – the Davis was really good. So now he's coming off an ACL tear and he breaks his foot like in the second game or some third game, Colorado, Colorado State breaks his foot. So this guy's had this one bad deal um, after another. And then last year, first game they pitched him the ball, he fumbled it. So he really has had a rough stretch since that kind of breakout seeming um, season. So, you know, he's a redshirt junior. Uh, he's healthy. He can catch the football, too, which is something P. Ryan could do. And I don't know if Pierce is very good at that. No idea if Lingard is. Pierce, I don't think, is. So maybe he's going to be a change of pace, third down type guy. So mark my words on that one if you're watching some Gator ball this year. And Malik Davis has a good year. I, I think that he can have an impact on this offense 
and he's kind of an afterthought kind of guy that I don't think people are really talking about. That's an interesting name. I, I thought maybe as the X Factor you were going to go with somebody like Kadarius Tony, who, uh, you know, I think everybody expected him to have that Percy Harvin effect. He certainly hasn't. Do you expect him to have a big year this year? I mean, you know, I guess when I say X Factor, I think more of a guy who's like really kind of a little bit off the radar. Okay. I mean, Kadarius Tony, you know, because Jacob Copeland or Tony, if you're going to say, who could be a guy who could really just absolutely just bust out. One of those guys could, particularly Copeland. Copeland is a physical specimen. This kid is like, I saw him wearing a sleeveless T-shirt at practice last year and was like, Jesus, who is that? It's Copeland. And I'm like, that's Jacob. I mean, this guy had shoulders like, he looks like Wilbur Marshall or something. He benches 405 pounds. He runs like a 4-4 and benches 405. And he's like, you know, six feet, you know, 205 or whatever, 6-1. So he, he's a, he's a, an impressive physical specimen. But the, the problem with him last year, he had like a 12% drop rate or something. Some SEC, uh, maybe it's pro football focus or something, ranked SEC receivers on drop rate. He might have been number one or two. So he needs to shore that up because you can't build trust. Right, and your coaches or your quarterback, if you're dropping passes. Um, but Kadarius Tony, I mean, the guy's like a po- what, what do you call him? A joystick, human joystick is what they like to call him, because he's just like just so fifty. He's got that cutting ability. The difference with him and Percy Harvin, Percy didn't have that that you know repertoire of all that those those junk jukes and and jump steps and all this stuff, right? Hop, hopping here and there. He didn't really have that. I mean, Percy was just pure raw speed and just toughness, strength. Um, but Tony doesn't have his acceleration is the thing. I mean, who does? I mean, Percy Harvin's still one of the most fantastic players I've ever seen with my own two eyes. He was unbelievable. He was incredible. He's, a, he's really probably the best college football player in my, that I've seen with my own eyes covered, um, Reggie Nelson that year he had in those six was unbelievable too, but Percy was unreal. So anyway, um, Tony though, again, you got a former high school quarterback, you got, who has suspect hands at times. So he's, he needs to continue to improve that reliability there. But, and the other thing that frustrates Dan and the coaches, is he doesn't really play within the system. So, like, you call the play, and he just gets, once the ball's in his hands, you don't know where, where he's going. Like, he might just not do the play that was called. So, that was something I think he's got to earn the trust of the coaches, too. But the kid, man, he averages 10.5 to 11.5 yards every time he touches the ball the last two seasons. The problem last year is he broke his collarbone in the uh, UC Martin game, one of these cupcake games, broke his collarbone and didn't come back into like the Georgia game or something. But the first game of the year, he had a 66-yard touchdown off the screen pass against Miami. So that showed what he can do. I mean, yeah, I think that if he can stay healthy, he's a threat. A lot of people thought he might try to jump to the NFL, which I thought would have been really short-sighted on his part. He needs to improve his hands. He needs to become 
a better return threat. If they can somehow get him back there, he'd be a great puck returner, but he just doesn't catch the ball cleanly. You know what I mean? you got to be able to really catch that football confidently while seeing what's going on in front of you. I mean, if you're a punt returner, or you're going to get killed. So uh, I'll be interested to see what his development's like, because he's a guy, even though he's a senior, I believe now, I mean, you looking at a roster, is he a senior? I should know. He is. Is he a, he senior? Is a senior? He is a senior. Yeah, I mean, even though he's a senior, he's still developing. I mean, really all college football players are. But he's not, he's far from a finished product. He needs to continue to develop. Yeah, Copeland and Tony could be really explosive guys if the light goes on for both of them. Edgar, last question I got for you. Uh, can you give us a couple of freshmen that might be those key contributors on the team this year if we do have a season? I, I mean, Gervin Dexter is the guy who just jumps out. I mean, he's their first five star signee as Gators coaches, the Mullen regime. He's out of Lake Wales, which is a little south of uh, Orlando. Kids like 6'6 six, six or 7, 280-something. Um, one of the coaches that coached against him said he's as big as like a Volkswagen Beetle. And, I mean, he's just a huge kid. I mean, he had so many tackles for loss last year. It's like he had like 50 tackles for loss or something. I mean, he's just absolutely just overwhelms people but you can't do that at the college level for one and for two there are you know some questions about whether he's got the motor for that you know what I mean sometimes you can take plays off when you're that good and that's a real concern when you get a guy that dominant at that size of high school it's like now he's playing against consistent guys with experience so what his impact will be remains to be seen but he uh, certainly has the tools. I mean, it's like I and Dan said the first time he saw him, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, there, that guy is a football player. Let's see. Did I have, I think what he said, oh, no, he can palm a Volkswagen was the coach. He said the uh, former opposing coach. He walks into a room and you can say, this guy has been blessed with certain athletic skills with Mullins' quote on him. But in terms of the other, I mean, they signed a bunch of DBs, which they needed. They signed a bunch of defensive linemen, which they needed. And they signed a bunch of seven DBs, six defensive linemen, four offensive linemen. So they're addressing positions in need. The one thing they've been criticized on is they didn't sign a running back. And that's big. But I mentioned Lingo earlier. He was the Gatorade Player of the Year. They're getting... Uh, T.J. Henderson, the cornerback, who was the high pick in the draft this past year, going to the Jags, his brother, Xavier, is coming here. Uh, he's a playmaking receiver. And there's this kid, Josh Braun, from Live Oak, which is just up the road. Javon Curse the Freak came from there, um, 65 miles north of here. He's 6'6", 335. Braun has, like, I think his dad might be a big weightlifter. They got, like, a whole weight room at their house. He's apparently a horse. Uh, you know, and I'll tell you, the, the most intriguing guy in this class to me, because they are going to need some cornerback depth, is this Jahari Rogers kid. He was a Texas quarterback as a junior in high school. His great quarterback. I mean, in terms, I mean, I don't know if he's a great passer, but he just produced because he was such an incredible athlete. He could run and throw on the run. 
I mean, Tony, for example, was a great high school quarterback, but he couldn't play it at the college level just because of accuracy or whatever size. But Rodgers converted the cornerback as a senior and was one of the top 100 recruits in the country after he was playing one year at the position. So that, he's a pretty intriguing guy. Um, so, yeah, they, they had some guys. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this is like a number eight recruiting class. Back-to-back classes for the first time that high since uh, – or number eight was the highest recruiting class since 2013 when Mutt signed the number three class. So this isn't like they had nine guys out of the state of Florida in the top 50, which is more than any school. This isn't like Dan Mullen and his staff were just blowing it on the recruiting trail, but you're just in the SEC. You know what I'm saying? It's like they still were like number eight is still fifth in the SEC. <laughs> right? Yeah, so I mean, they're still doing the job. They're, they're still doing the job, Edgar. I mean, there's no question about it. It's still an SEC school that's bringing in the talent. And the one thing that they're doing is they're developing that talent. They're coaching these guys up. And, and you said, I mean, that's what Dan Mullen's group is, is best at and taught Grantham as well. So, I mean, there, there's They no are question. very, very good developers. Well, and that's what Dan likes to say. He's like, I have my own star system. I mean, that's one thing about Dan, too, that I like. I mean, Dan is believes in Dan. I mean, Dan doesn't shy away from a challenge. He doesn't think he's stepping into a game and going like – they, they, let's say they play Alabama in the SEC title game this year if the season goes off and all goes well. That, that could very well happen. I don't think he's going to go into that game intimidated by Nick Saban at all. I mean, Dan is, uh, is not intimidated. And so his whole thing is like, hey, I have my own star system. Edgar, that, that was my last question, our last question. Uh, please tell our listeners where they can find you. Uh, who do you write for? Uh, tell us everything that you do. I work for the Orlando Sentinel. I've been there this, since 2012. Been covering the Gators off and on since 02, though. I was at the Palm Beach Coast for five seasons and this will be my eighth with the, with the uh, Orlando Sentinel eighth football season. I can be found at OS Gators on Twitter, but uh, hopefully some people stuck it out to listen to all my uh, tangential thinking and endless long-winded questions. But hopefully you got enough info, man, to get jacked up for the season. We hope it happens. Edgar, thank you for the knowledge. We really appreciate it. So uh, take care of yourself in Florida. Sure. Happy to do it, man.